0: on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. You drive me wild. <laughs> what up, Crazy
1: Train Radio? You look like hell,
2: and I could look the same.
1: What's the photo
2: for? You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want
1: answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! truth, truth. truth true
0: i love scotch i love scotch scotch has got scotch here it goes down down into my belly what's it open
2: Say it. 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 Don't mess with me. I'm one crazy nooboo.
1: Hi, this is Wayne Byrne, author of the new book, Welcome to Elm Street, Inside the Film and Television Nightmares. This is Crazy Chain Radio. Check it out.
2: Hey folks, it's your least favourite host in the podcast world, croc, Jonathan Steele boy, do we have a good one for you today. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this next guest is an acclaimed writer, and his new book has explored the creation and lasting impact of a certain horror franchise. And... Of course, I'm going to do prop comedy for those who see the video, but which will be just us, but I don't give a shit. And that prop comedy which show, we are going to be talking a nightmare on Elm Street. What a shock with our show, with a history of guests from the series and whatnot, and watch-alongs and all that. But that's here near there. Welcome to Elm Street. It's a fascinating deep dive into the creation of Wes Craven's iconic car franchise with behind-the-scenes tales in depth analysis of its social political themes and fascinating interviews with key players who never previously discussed their involvement in the series, which is kind of a surprise because of this little gem I got in my hand, the two-disc documentary, Never Sleep Again. but. Let's go ahead and get into this, Wayne Bryan. How are you doing, sir? And welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's been a a busy week. You know, the the book has only been out a few days, and you know, it the word back has been so strong. It's been so well received. Um, I'm just so happy. You know, you spend a year writing these things, and they just exist in a word document, and then now it's real. It's out there. It's a it's a it's a thing. Uh, no longer belongs to me It's belongs to the fans so I just hope um, I hope the fans enjoy it you know I I wrote it from the perspective of a fan but also from the perspective of someone who has just admired these films as being something more than just horror films you know as you mentioned there we go into the socio-political teams for me you know as I, I I discovered these films very young I was five six years old when I first saw Freddy's Nightmare. I would have been three oh, you, you bet me to it <laughs>
2: I would have been three when I found it, ironically.
1: But isn't that great though that these films can live with you as you get older and you discover more about yourself and you discover more about your relationship to cinema with them as you grow older because particularly with Elm Street, I find there is so much there in them in terms of their teams and how they relate to just everyday people. You know what I mean? They're 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 set in middle class kind of suburban America and Elm Street could be any street though. It could be any street in any part of the world. It delves into issues that everybody at some stage I think deals with in their lives, you know, which is you know there's broken homes, there's alcoholism, there's abuse, there's just a lot of things which are which exist in day-to-day life, real horror. And that's I yes. think that's one of the things that makes this franchise so powerful is because beyond the boogeyman of Freddy Krueger, which is a great movie monster in and of itself. Wes Craven's teams delve deep into the heart of some dark territory, everyday territory.
2: That's a mouthful for sure, what you just mentioned there, all that. But let's start with the success and whatnot of the book. And I had recently saw, because we know everything on the internet is true, 100% that the book had made the horror cinema charts for Amazon hot new releases. Uh, I believe last I saw it was number two. So are you surprised it's doing as well as it is so far?
1: For me, it's a surprise. It's my first book to reach that level of immediate kind of acceptance and you know sales, I guess you want to put it like that. Um, I mean, it's only out for a week, so I'm kind of shocked. I mean, it was there, it was even in some of the charts as a pre-sale. I think it's one of those things where Elm Street and Freddy is a logo. It's a brand. So I think once you put something out there with that on it, it immediately has an audience. And that's not in any way what I was thinking. I I was never thinking of it as a commercial enterprise. For me, I just wanted to write a good book digging into Elm Street and, you know, be true to how I felt about the series and honor it. But like my previous books, they wouldn't have, they've been well received and they've been on various charts or critics lists or whatever, but this is different. And I don't know how these, you know, these Amazon lists work necessarily, you know, that's a kind of a marketing thing that I wouldn't be privy to, but it's so great to see, you know, if you, if you Google your book and there it is, it pops up on an Amazon list and something like that. And you, you think, Jesus, it's making an impact in terms of, people are buying it, people are interested, people are talking about it. And I mean, that's that's a whole other level. And I mean, in one way, I'm surprised just because it's new to me, but in another way, I'm not surprised because I know how powerful A Nightmare on Elm Street is. I know how popular it is. So it's just one of those things that, I mean, It's to me, it's just surreal more than anything else. So the fact that it's, it's, it's on any list, I'm just so happy because it means somebody somewhere is reading it.
2: Well, as I mentioned in the introduction which was a mouthful at least uh for those who've been living under a rock would know the documentary i'm referencing never sleep again which is over four hours long for the regular documentary give or take six maybe if you go with the bonus features all that fun stuff and deleted scenes and yada 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 yes i'm going with a seinfeld reference there folks so and that was obviously pretty well in depth about the entire series and stuff and you touch on the entire series in the book so with it obviously being written about talked about in documentaries podcasts dvd extras you know just the whole gamut that what we have sitting here today in 2022 Going into a project such as this, how do you think you were going to be able to bring a different approach on a topic that's been talked about so much?
1: Well, I think the starting point was different in that it was really Freddy's Nightmares that got me going on this project. I love Freddy's Nightmares. I know it's not very well remembered or very well considered, but I absolutely love that. And as I said earlier on, when I started getting into Elm Street, It was at that moment where Elm Street 3 had just come out on VHS. Part 4 was in the cinema and Freddy's Nightmares was on TV. So I was surrounded by Elm Street in my young life at that moment. You know, you could go into a local, I guess what you'd call them in America would be the dollar store. We'd have them over here. It'd be a pound shop. And you could go in there and you'd get your Freddy plastic, cheap plastic Freddy gloves. You'd get your little Fred head water squirters. You'd get your Freddy lunchboxes. It was like Freddy was everywhere. It was part of culture. And I just loved it. I mean, to me, it, it felt like what Frankenstein or Dracula must have friends to, meant to my father when he was, you know, growing up in the 40s. You know, I never looked at it as he Freddy Krueger is this horrendous child killer. I just looked at him as this great movie monster. And But Freddy's Nightmares was, to me, it was my Saturday morning cartoon almost. It was on Friday night here, very late maybe 11 o'clock, I think, at night. So, you know, just a little bit past my bedtime. So I'd get my dad to record it on tape. And then Saturday morning, I'd watch it. And you'd have those two episodes. So, you know, Freddy's Nightmares meant a lot to me over the years. And I was always, I could never understand why so little was written about it or talked about. And even in um, Never Sleep Again, you know, it devotes a little um, 10, 15-minute thing to it. I still felt that wasn't just, it wasn't enough I really wanted to dig in deep into um, Freddy's Nightmares. So I thought, you know, I couldn't really do a book on Freddy's Nightmares. It's not, you couldn't stretch it out to a hundred thousand words, you know, realistically, but it would make a damn good chapter. And it's probably the biggest chapter in my book, but I thought, well, if I'm gonna do something on Freddy's Nightmares, I'd love to do something and all the other things I've felt about about each of the films because over the years i've often said to my friends god i'd love to dig in deep into the elm street franchise because any other books that are out there and there are good books out there they they talk about the making of it they talk about it in the in the context of being this great special effects horror movie and that that's fine it is all of those things but what intrigued me all the way through is the teams is those ideas that wes craven laid down so i thought well if i want to write about freddie's nightmares i want to write about all the films and I want to dig into the teams and all of the films and kind of make it kind of a, it's not quite an alternative history. I mean, some of the stories in there are in other books and are in, um, never sleep again, but I did get other people in there who've never spoken about their experience on Elm street. So it was kind of an exclusive element to it. You know, that I'm bringing in people who interest me that, you know, that maybe never interested previous writers or previous documentarians. Um, and I think that was it. The seed was Freddie's Nightmares, strangely enough. And it just gave me this opportunity. I, after my last book, I had the opportunity to go to do another book with my publisher. And I said, I want to do something on Elm Street, you know, and it just grew from there. And I put the word out. If you notice in the book, I didn't talk to too many of the actors. I spoke to a lot of the writers, the directors, the cinematographers, special effects people. Again, it's the people who made these films who are not necessarily the ones who will pop up on making of documentaries. I wanted to dig into the other side of it, get that other perspective. And I think largely speaking, I was successful. Of course you have to have Robert in there. I mean, he's the logo. He's the head of the, without Wes Craven, next best is Robert England. He, He is, and he met me on those, for lack of a better word, intellectual level. He is all about the teams. He is all about the ideas. So when I spoke to him about those he more than delivered. He met me right on that level. So we had some great chats about the teams and the ideas, you know, in Elm Street. And as you'll see in the book, he, he really digs deep. And I, I he was a dream to interview. He's a he's a journalist or book writer's dream to interview because he, mm-hmm. doesn't, hold, he doesn't hold back. You know, he you, you pose a question to him, he'll give you all all he has. And especially on something like that. I mean, this means so much to him. And it's so great to see. But um, I was so lucky with everybody I got. Everybody gave me some great stuff, and I'm so happy with it.
2: And when it comes to Robert and chatting with him, I'll put it this way, and I mean this respectfully. And love Robert to death. Looking forward to hopefully talking to him again. But this would fit. If you ask Robert what time it is, he'll tell you how to build a watch.
1: (laughs) That sums it up perfectly.
2: (laughs) Yeah, because he... If he has the time, he will sit and talk and talk. And and I mean this in a good way, because he and it's funny because he's got such a profound knowledge of history and world cultures and just whatever you want to talk about. He has knowledge on it in some form or fashion, but to bring it in with elm street and i have a for those who listen to this know i have a background in american history and presidential and all that kind of stuff and it just and i'm sure you got into this with robert talking about when you think of elm street on a bigger picture we're talking maybe in some ways showing the death of american innocence and the american dream world post kennedy assassination in the 60s and watergate and all that fun stuff if you want to talk about a historical standpoint but with the folks you spoke with within the book was and obviously we both agree that robert is such a pleasure to deal with and can go in depth about everything but is there somebody that surprised you in your conversations with him
1: several and i'll start with chuck russell chuck russell has gotten a bad rap i think down the years in terms of his reputation you know because when you look at certain documentaries or or interviews of people and people might say well he was, he was very hard on him on the actors you know he was a tough guy to to work with as a as a director you know he had a vision and he stuck with it and sometimes that can come across as i don't know autocratic or whatever but Chuck like was like uh, Robert, he was so into the teams and so into the ideas and so into the story. He really wanted to honor Wes Craven and what Wes Craven brought to that, what, what, what Wes Craven created, you know? And I thought he was a fascinating person to speak to. Um, someone who I don't think has spoken enough, maybe publicly about his experience on Nightmare on Elm Street and certainly not enough about the teams. And that's really what's something I wanted to talk to him about. Yeah, but but Chuck is a craftsman as well. So when you're talking to someone like Chuck, it's great because he's someone who can give you the aesthetic and the, the thematic stuff, but he can also talk about the craft of just wanting to make a good horror film. And I think that's why Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is the masterpiece it is, because it had someone at the helm who was concerned about the themes and the ideas and who just wanted to make a damn good horror film. You know, so that's, and again, Roy Wagner, the cinematographer, he on part three, he's like that as well. He's a story guy. He's all into the ideas and the teams, but he's a supreme craftsman. He's a, a genius photographer. So people like that, you know, are, are just such a joy to to speak to because you do, you're a little trepidatious sometimes when you don't want to come across as being too dry or academic or pretentious or intellectual with, with these people, because at the end of the day, some people are just for this, it was a job, you know, and they just did a great job but they're not necessarily there to, to, to elaborate on Wes Craven's teams. And, you know, there's there's plenty of people in there who I just interviewed purely from the technical perspective or just to give me some behind-the-scenes production info, you know, that kind of way. So I had a, li- a nice mix in there of people who were able to talk to me about the teams, who were able to talk to me about production, were able to talk to me about technical know-how and all that kind of thing. But I would say Chuck Russell was... I, I had such a great time talking to him. And of course, Mick Strawn, pr- production designer, who, yeah, he's such a great guy, did my forward. You just laugh when you're when you're talking to Mick. He's such a good humored guy and he puts you in such great spirits. So anytime I talk to Mick Strawn, it was a great time. And yeah. then um Bobby Lesser, who people mightn't necessarily be as familiar with from the Elm Street world, but he comes from, from Die Hard, from Shoot to Kill, from many Peter Hyman's films. And I met Bobby through a friend of one of my best friends, Amanda Kramer, who I'm doing a book with as well. But she introduced me to Bobby and Bobby was so cool to get, you know, because he came from Freddy's Nightmares. And that was a thrill to me because like I say, so so few people have talked about their experience on Freddy's Nightmares. that To talk to Bobby you know, who I knew from all these other great things like Monster Squad and Die Hard and whatever was so cool, you know, and he was so appreciative that somebody wanted to talk about his work on this show, which is, to be fair, largely forgotten. So there was a lot of people, Lisa Gottlieb, the director who worked on Freddy's Nightmares, there's so many people, you know, and I was so happy to talk to people like Andre Ellingson and Nick Benson, who are the unsung heroes of a a series like this the special effects guys you know the guys who work on creating what is kind of at the forefront of these films when you watch these movies it's the first thing you see is these that they're spectacular looking horror movies and that's thanks to the likes of nick benson and andre ellingson and mick Strawn and roy wagner and Stephen Fre- fireberg these are the guys who just make them aesthetically beautiful films and then it, it's it's if, if they're into the teams and all those other ideas that I'm into, well, then that, that's great as well.
2: Well, I know Mick is, and God, I know my phone is going to ring when this is published, when I say this, but because you talk about Mick being a fun guy to talk to, which he is, and friend of the show and stuff, but in my neck of the woods, we would call guys like him a simple bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and God, I know I'm leaving that in. I don't care. I I know my phone is going to ring. When he hears that, what do you mean by, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll give me grief, but I, <laughs> I, 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 think,
1: I, of, I think of fun. I think of laughing because yeah, just...
2: <laughs> like, I know exactly. And that's what I mean by that all positive, but God, I know my phone is going to ring, but yeah. uh I definitely think mix forward. is definitely sets the tone for the book for sure. And but with everything we've said so far and with this franchise, the one thing that always stands out for me. And we both said we grew up watching the series and watched the history and the evolution of things and such. But what are your thoughts of something that was a low budget, independent film that started with part one? To go to such a mainstream pop culture phenomenon because you mentioned it, especially when you were a child, and I remember the lunchboxes and the squeezy head, the water thing, and the they had the dolls and the, and even now they have more the action figures and the conventions and yeah, you know, it's just become such a phenomenon.
1: I think. I can't complain about it because it, it had to reach that point in culture for me to find it. Um, you know, I would never have had it remained an underground horror movie, independent horror movie. It probably no, would have never come across on my radar at that age. It was the perfect maelstrom, you know, of pop culture awareness for me to find it at a young age in the video shops, in the, the dollar stores, in the local cinema, you know, when you walk past the cinema in your local town, you see the poster outside. All of those things added up to me being interested in it enough to seek it out, you know, at a young age. And I, was, I have to credit my parents, you know, they they were quite lenient for me to be able to go ahead and actually, you know, get them to rent Nightmare on Elm Street 3 on VHS without questioning it going, well, hold on, this is an 18 rated movie this is not for you. They just, I don't think they ever questioned it. Like I say, my dad probably just looked at it and goes, oh, it's a silly horror movie like Frankenstein or something like that, you know? So he never would have questioned the content, but I think it had to reach that almost saturation point in culture for me to to find it. So I'm happy with it that it did. Now, when it gets to, you know, uh, Freddy versus Jason and remake territory, that's a different thing. I mean, in terms of quality, of course, expectations are different at certain points in time and you know when it gets to something like a remake in 2010 what are people looking for in a nightmare on elm street movie it made money it made serious money but i think for any of us who are like serious fans we kind of go well where's robert you know what i mean it it's not a it's not a nightmare on elm street movie it's not it's not freddie without robert so I I don't know. It's a double-edged sword. the whole thing of how big it got in culture. I'm so appreciative that it has become what it is because otherwise my book probably wouldn't be as of of interest as it is to people. But in terms of the quality of the movies, I don't know what to say. It's kind of hit and miss. Freddy vs. Jason, I wasn't a huge fan of. I appreciate the fact that it's uh, a marriage of these two Icons and franchises that I love. I love both uh, um, Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth, but for me, it wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't what I want in either of those franchises. You know, it was too glossy. I think aesthetically speaking, for a Friday the Thirteenth movie, and it was too frivolous for it to be an Elm Street movie. So it was kind of caught in this middle ground. It felt more like a video game. It felt like it felt like you know when you're over at a friend's house and you're sitting there watching them playing a video game. You know and you just okay someone else is enjoying it but i'm just sitting there watching someone else have fun and it had that feel to it you know what i loved about Freddy versus jason actually was the first three minutes which is the opening montage of all the old stuff and freddie's voiceover which is really ominous i thought that was brilliant it really set me up for a good time in terms of oh it's bringing back all those memories of all those great movies mm-hmm. and then it just kind of I think the teens in it were very bland. You didn't really care for them. So therefore, where's your your rooting interest here? You know. Um, you know, it was it was fine. It was very much it was a Ronnie U movie. Ronnie Yu makes fun action horror movies, which are very self-referential and very ironic, and that's fine. But for me, it just wasn't a uh it wasn't a great Elm Street movie or Friday the 13th movie, but I understood that at that point in culture this is what people wanted, you know, and that's that's fine. So I'm I'm okay with that. But, you know, when it came to writing about those two films in particular, it was probably the biggest struggle, you know, because you're trying, I, I, I don't want to be the guy who bashes movies. I don't want to be known as that kind of critic. But, you know, you're, you're, you're really, you're trying to find some good stuff to say about them. And there's there's good stuff to say about Freddy versus Jason, but I couldn't find anything good to say about the remake.
2: No. And <laughs> you're, you're pulling, you're grasping at straws especially when it comes to the remake and I never really spoken. I don't think publicly about it and I'm not going to sit and bash stuff either, Mm. but with that being said, and I know I sound like a Southerner. Oh, bless his heart. Mm. But yeah, I'm getting ready to, mm,
1: mm,
2: (laughs) yeah, but I think they made it too soon. If that makes sense. And because obviously Robert's still around and kicking and conventions, and there's, but Robert has said this too that it's multiple generations that have the initial franchise, even if we include Freddy versus Jason in that, where we had the cinema, the VHS, yep. the DVD. And now we are at a streaming point, so we're at least three generations in with the say, like I said, the original series and even Freddy versus Jason. So there, when you think of the franchise and the logo and all, it's Robert is Freddy, so it's kind of hard to. And I'm not bashing uh, Jackie for what he did he he did fine for what they gave him
1: but he's, he's a fantastic actor um, yeah I, I, in and of himself in the film he is very very good but i think it's just you know for those of us who grew up with robert as freddy that is all we want
2: as yeah freddy. exactly
1: we, we, we unless you know i mean dracula is bella lugosi to many people mm-hmm. and to other generations dracula is christopher lee You know, and that's that's generations apart, though. I think we're still close enough to the generation of Robert England as Freddie to be still kind of like, oh, we don't want anybody else as Freddie.
2: Exactly. And that's I think the point I'm trying to get at for sure. But the other question I wanted to ask before I let you go, because I know it's late over in Ireland and I will pull out something for you after this. I think you'll appreciate. Awesome. But even though he has passed away in 2015, how do you think Wes Craven is still contributing to a huge cultural imprint? Obviously he's done the night started. He's the founding father for nightmare now street, but obviously he started the Scream franchise and he's, had his hand in other projects as well, but those are the two biggies when you mention his name. So, here as we sit almost seven years later since his passing, and I don't, rem- I think he died in the summer, so we're coming up on seven years. So, what kind of I- impact do you think he is still leaving, even though he's been gone from what we know a physical presence?
1: God, I think horror cinema would not be the same without either Scream or Elm Street. I mean, Scream, he had done it. I will always say he he did the whole Scream thing, the self-referential, self-reflexive thing first in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. But mm-hmm. obviously that didn't have as big of an audience as Scream did. So a lot of people might attribute that kind of filmmaking style to Scream. But any kind of horror movie you see these days, you know, which is a nod and a wink and self-referential and kind of it knows what it's doing. I think you have to attribute that to Wes Craven because he did a very bold thing, you know, especially in New Nightmare, which you hadn't really seen since the new Hollywood era of like what Dennis Hopper was doing with the last movie, things like that. Um, Ingmar Bergen, Bergman was doing with Persona, which is turning the camera in on itself, you know, um, letting the audience know you're watching a movie here, but you're still engrossed in the narrative, which is kind of a double-edged sword. It's like when you do a breaking the fourth wall moment in a movie. Are, are, you, are you threatening to lose the audience by waking them up and going, hey, you're watching a movie here? Wes Craven, I think his his imprint is in so much of horror movie today. You know, it's um, an Elm Street. I, the thing about Elm Street is you don't see as many obvious imitators as you would have Scream, because Scream is more... It's less iconic, you could say, because it doesn't have a Freddy Krueger. It has the, the ghost face indeed. But I think that the legacy of Scream is more in the sense of knowing that a lot of horror films have. Um, I think you don't see as much Elm Street imitators because if you see an Elm Street imitator, you're going to spot it straight away because nobody can replicate Freddy Krueger. And if they did, it'd be such an obvious phony.
2: Goes you back know. to what we were talking about with the remake in 2010 yeah but before i touch on the or not i'll touch on this now first and foremost what i reached out to grab and it is the legendary tullamore do uh Irish whiskey
1: uh, mother's milk <laughs> yes
2: <laughs> so
1: oh, and i love that a all is
2: yes and i want to it has nothing to do with the book, but I want to reference it because I see a corner of the poster. So hence why I reached into the video cabinet again. Okay. A little.
1: Ah, man. The first movie I ever saw in a movie theater. You know, it, objectively speaking, I'd probably have to say, if someone said, what's your favorite movie? Hands down, it has to be Masters of Universe. If nothing because of it opened the doors of cinema to me. You know, objectively speaking, if I was to review it, you know, could I give it five stars? I don't know, but I will fight about it all the way. It is to me, it's just a magical movie. It is, You know, some people have Star Wars. Some people have I don't, whatever. To me, it's yeah. masters of the universe. Man, when I saw that, I was four years old when I saw that in the cinema. And I, I to this day, I remember walking up. To, we were queuing outside. So the poster was just there right in front of us for like half an hour. Walked up the steps, went into the auditorium. As soon as those curtains opened, you know, and just the screen, the, the, the Canon logo came up, the music, Bill Conti's music came up. Man, my mind was blown. I remember looking up and seeing the kind of stream from the projector and just thinking, what the hell is, What? where am I? This yeah. is amazing. You know, you're, you're you're a small kid in this, what seems like a huge theater. And I mean, nowadays if I walk into that screen room, it doesn't feel so big, but it was just a magical experience. And that's a film I've come back to again and again, I can watch it as many times as I like and not get sick of it. And again, it's it, it's part nostalgia, but it's it's personal. It means something to me.
2: Well, I think you'll appreciate this. And the reason I want to bring this up and acknowledge the, the corner of the poster that's in the video here. Or the feed, I should say, is it brings the childhood like uh, innocence, I guess, in certain aspects with that film. And I know we were talking to welcome the Elm Street folks, but and folks who listen notice, but I think you'll appreciate this from Masters of the Universe. Blade Anthony DeLongis is a friend of the show as well.
1: Oh, fantastic! Well, one of the best stuntmen,
2: swordsmen, you know, he does all that stuff, whips, and but he just had such a great, great role in. Masters as Blade, so
1: absolutely. And I also i only see him there recently in Roadhouse, which yes. I again. <laughs> so, yeah, Anthony, if you're listening, thank you for everything. <laughs> yeah,
2: I should put you in touch. I—I I think you guys would get along great. But, <laughs> I
1: have many questions for him.
2: <laughs> and, and you know what? He'll answer everything for you. That's <laughs> for sure. And yeah, keep an eye for the right boot, as you mentioned there. Uh, <laughs> but welcome to elm street where is the best spot for people to get
1: i would direct them to MacFarlandBooks.com, which is my publisher um it's it's everywhere i mean it's on amazon at barnes and noble um anywhere that sells books pretty much you can get it there but you know if you want to go direct to the publisher that'd be great i, I know they have a speedy you know service in getting it out to people so um but yeah we can get it anywhere yeah as long as as long as you can get it and read it and enjoy it i'll be happy
2: Well, Wayne, thank you so much for the time.
1: Dante, it's my absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed it.
0: try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. Now that's what I call depressing, is gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope want to jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting Now That's What I Call Depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars wrinkled ladies for those who weren't really into cougars but those who had that special friend whilst in cell block 2b we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come with cheeks wide open Who the fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that'd rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon, farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow-dry your hair in the full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Ah. Oh!
1: Oh!
2: you're listening to crazy train radio don't take a nap